when the United States looks at allies that are dealing with an increasingly complex and frankly deteriorating security environment and who are willing to pay their fair share and willing to do more, this is actually just what the United States would like to see from more of its allies. So that that what happens within the context of the US-Australian alliance, I actually think has broader repercussions outside of it. Hello and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia Ahn. The Australian election is scheduled for Saturday, May 21st, and is expected to be a tight race between the current Liberal National Coalition and the opposition Labour Party. This election occurs in the 70th year of the US-Australia alliance, and in a moment in which headlines are inundated by the war in Ukraine, news of China's aggression in the South Pacific, and differing expectations over how the American-Australian and wider alliances will evolve. In this episode, we'll examine the foreign policy implications of Australia's upcoming election, including what the recent China-Solomon Island security agreement and the unfolding war in Ukraine could mean for Australian national security. And in particular, we'll explore the candidates' approaches to navigating Australia's alliances and its relationship with a more aggressive China. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Charles Edel. Dr. Edel is the inaugural Australia Chair and a Senior Advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to that, Dr. Edel served on the U.S. Secretary of State's Policy Planning Staff from 2015 to 2017, where he advised the Secretary of State on political and security issues in the Indo-Pacific region. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Dr. Edel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Julia. So the Australian elections are fast approaching, currently scheduled for actually um, Saturday, May 21st. So um, I'd like to first ask you a little bit about the current government. Could you tell us a little bit about what parties make up the current government and what the public perception of this government has been since it's been sworn in in 2018? Sure. So the current government is generally referred to as the coalition because it's a coalition between uh, the Liberal Party uh, and the Nationals. Uh, for American listeners, don't be confused. Liberal Party means uh, the center right. Uh, the Labor is center left. So again, the uh, current government is a coalition. It's referred to as the coalition. Um, and it uh, has been in power uh, for quite a while. The last one election in 2018, when everyone was predicting that they would lose, and yet they won. Um, the current uh, perception, uh, if you use polling as an indication, uh, is been down. Uh, COVID's been tough for every government around the world uh, to handle. Uh, they've made it through. They made it through much better uh, than other countries. But I think you know that the mood towards incumbents is not as favorable uh, as it once was. Uh, what we're seeing very interestingly is national security and foreign policy have also come into this election in a way that they haven't in almost any Australian election since the early uh, 2000s. But at this point, uh, again, this is going to be a hotly uh, contested election. It's really hard uh, to predict who's going to uh, come out on top here. But it's really become something of a referendum on uh, Scott Morrison, uh, the leader of the government's uh, character and on his government at this point. And with that being said, how have the elections been shaping up thus far? And um, who are the key candidates and parties in the election? Yeah, you know, the way that it's been shaping up thus far, I mean, uh, Australians track this very closely. So they put out weekly polls, uh, you know, every single week, election time or not, 
about which party uh, is ahead, which one has more favorable ratings uh, from the average Australian. And we've now seen that uh, Labor, the opposition, that's again center-left, has been leading in the polls for more than a year uh, at this point. Uh, now, their election season is short. It's only six weeks this time around. And we've seen some kind of variation within the lead that Labor's had. Uh, as soon as the election gun went off, uh, there were some stumbles uh, out the gate by Anthony Albanese, who's the leader of the opposition, and that lead trunk. Uh, then the Solomon Islands issue came around and that lead grew. So we've seen it kind of going back and forth uh, at this point. But Julia, you had asked me about uh, the key figures here. So leading the government is Scott Morrison, who has been a leader since 2018 served in a bunch of cabinet roles uh, prior to that. Uh, you know, from a foreign policy and national security perspective, where, you know, it's also worth knowing their foreign minister, Maurice Payne, the defense uh, secretary, uh, uh, or defense uh, minister, rather, uh, Peter Dutton. Uh, you know, when we kind of flip uh, to the other side on labor, uh, Anthony Albanese, uh, a longtime political operator, a man of the left, is the leader. Uh, we have Penny Wong as the shadow uh, foreign policy spokesperson in Australian politics, right? A spokesperson means if they win government, she would become uh, the foreign minister. Um, and uh, a bit unclear who would hold the defense portfolio. Um, it's probably going to be Richard Marles, uh, who has had that role before, that portfolio. He's currently the deputy leader, not holding the defense portfolio, but odds are he would probably take that portfolio himself. Got it. And with a lot happening in the world this year, um, from the war being fought in Ukraine to um, AUKUS, which was new from last year, and a receding global pandemic, what have been the key foreign policy issues in this election? And um, do the candidates differ a lot on these issues? So, you know, interestingly, I mean, tra and traditionally, uh, foreign policy, uh, you know, has not been a major issue. Uh, it's one that people like me, uh, people who follow this stuff carefully, think about but probably is really in the background for most voters. Uh, that's different uh, this time around. That's different uh, both because the nature of the Australia-China debate has become so intense over the last couple of years, and especially in the aftermath of the multiple kind of um, economically coercive moves that China took towards Australia. Almost every Australian is tracking on this, so it's entered in that way. It's also entered in a way because of what's been going on in the Pacific and even over the last couple of weeks in the Solomon Islands, the potential for there uh, to have been a China-Solomon uh, Islands security agreement uh, signed. So at this point, foreign policy broadly defined, I mean, you mentioned Ukraine too, is on the vines of voters. The pitch that the different parties have been making is that uh, this is generally favorable terrain uh, for the conservatives, for center rights, as indeed it generally is um, around the world, or at least that is the perception. Um, so labor has been at pains to stress that there really is no differences uh, between the parties, uh, that there might be rhetorical differences. You might hear the government accusing them of going soft on China or not being true supporters of the um, American-Australian alliance. But if you look at all the substantive issues, uh, AUKUS, Quad, uh, kind of a bigger role in Asia, uh, there's actually not a huge amount of daylight uh, between the two parties. And I think that uh, the biggest difference that we'd probably see is that, you know, both rhetorically and in tone, uh, there is difference, but substantively, they're quite 
close uh, together uh, on most of the major issues. The debate seems to be framed around both in national security, but much broader as well. Uh, not uh, who's right, but who's more competent and who's going to be uh, a better executor in kind of pulling off the foreign policy that they need. Gotcha. And I wanted to key in a little bit more on that China-Solomon Islands security agreement you just mentioned. Um, I know in the past month, I've heard a lot of chatter about um, what this agreement could mean for increased Chinese military presence and aggression in the region. Um, And I guess, uh, first of all, for listeners who may have not heard about the Solomon Islands until um, this came up, Could you first talk about how this deal happened and what exactly is the significance of the Solomon Islands to Australia, but maybe also to um, Australia's allies? Sure. So Solomon Islands, which is, uh, you know, islands, plural, there are like 900 of them in the archipelagic formulations. It's about, you know, 1800 miles to the um, north um, west of Australia. Really important uh, for their security. Uh, Every government of every stripe this is almost an existential um, you know, issue for them about not having a hostile power setting up on their northern approaches. Because as every um, Australian security official will tell you, uh, the last time that happened was 1942, 1943, when the Japanese were moving southwards and were only pushed back at both the Battle of the Coral Sea and then on the Battle of Guadalcanal. And the prospect of having a hostile, or we should say potentially a hostile power there, is really uh, troubling uh, for Australians. And the fact that it has the potential to uh, put them at greater risk, interfere with their shipping, um, muck around in the internal politics of the Pacific Islands themselves. So this is something that they're quite concerned about. And this has sprung up periodically before this point too, before the last couple of weeks, as the Chinese started to make moves in Vanuatu, uh, in Papua New Guinea and elsewhere, but they hadn't actually found fertile ground to have something go off. And what's happened over the past couple of weeks, Julia, is that a draft security agreement leaked. We've never seen the real thing um, between um, Honiara uh, and Beijing uh, that would do at least two things, assuming the draft is correct. And I say assuming because The Solomon Islands has confirmed that indeed they are in negotiations, but they will not say what is in the security pact because the Chinese will not let them, which is troubling in and of itself. But in this draft agreement, there are two things that are causing, I think, the greatest amounts of uh, concern. Uh, Number one is on the call of the Solomon Islands, Beijing would be willing to supply security forces into the Solomon Islands to help stabilize activity. Now, if you're an opposition member in the Solomon Islands, that sounds like a pretty flimsy context to invite the Chinese in to quell internal dissent, particularly in the lead up to an election next year. Uh, And that is troubling in and of itself. The other provision that seems uh, challenging for the region, and I say the region because it's not just Australia that's worried about this, is there's a provision in there about uh, the Solomon Islands allowing a ship replenishment facility uh, to come in. Uh, Now, that could take a lot of different shapes and forms. What that is is not quite known, but it begins to sound an awful lot like a naval base by another name, uh, inviting the Chinese in and helping them to militarize the Pacific, an area which has thus far not been um, militarized. 
and I wanted to follow up with that by asking you first, um, has there been maybe a deterioration in the Australia-Solomon Islands um, relationship over the past few years with the current government that has led to this pact? Or is this something maybe more to do with Chinese aggressions and actions? You know, I would put it more on the latter uh, than I would the former, because in fact, uh, Australian Solomon Island relations are doing pretty well. And in fact, uh, the uh, Australian government has not only been in there, but when there was destabilizing activity uh, in the Solomon Islands politically back in November, uh, the Australians actually sent peacekeeping forces in at the request of the Solomon Islands. Uh, however, you know, one of the things that we saw in the aftermath is in the run up to that kind of political turmoil, uh, there was about to be a vote of no confidence against the government, against Prime Minister Sogubari in the Solomon Islands. Uh, if you look at the Solomon Island press, which some of us do, um, you know, it seemed that anyone who voted against that measure of no confidence uh, was cut a $40,000 check that came from a Chinese slush fund in the Solomon Islands. So there are great concerns about the amount of kind of opaque Chinese money that's kind of coursing through the Solomon Islands system and going to several key political players uh, themselves. So I, I think that the most important thing about the Solomon Islands is, is that the Solomon Islands is not unique. It just happens to be the first place where China has found a willing participant in the Pacific. Because we know that over the last several years, China has been looking to expand its presence in the Pacific and has been scratching around for military facilities. We saw this in Vanuatu, we saw this in Papua New Guinea, we've seen this in Kiribati. Uh, so this is not unique, it just happens to be the first place where it might actually happen. Got it. And you talked a little bit about the reactions um, of the draft deal from the Australians. Has this um, revelation impacted a lot of the elections and um, have the candidates been able to um, elucidate what what their positions on this this news is? Yeah, you know, uh, it certainly reverberated through uh, kind of the media discourse uh, with kind of people either uh, saying that there was, you know, uh, they weren't caught by surprise of this. Uh, they did everything they could and they're working with the government uh, to make sure that this doesn't actually materialize as a Chinese base. That's the current government's uh, position. Or You'll also hear words that this is the largest security failure in the last seven decades of Australia's foreign policy. That would be the opposition's uh, position on this. So this has really reverberated through the campaign. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've heard, though, is what would they do differently? Uh, you know, the government has pointed consistently to its record. So the government, again, the coalition with Scott Morrison leading it, were the authors of the Pacific Step Up, uh, which came out in 2018, 2019, which was how to increase the government's attention to funding on and relations with and throughout the entire region. And we've seen actually a fair amount of um, efforts they've put in there, it, even though it's very clear that things are not working as well as Australia would like with the Solomon Islands. It, it's almost ironic because Scott Morrison himself, just based on his own background, um, as Pentecostal, Pentecostal Christian, who's done missionary work, is probably the Australian leader who has had kind of greatest uh, relations uh, with most of the Pacific Island leaders uh, themselves. That's the government's uh, proposition. You know, Labor, uh, I think, obviously sensing that there's a real political issue at play here, 
uh, but also as an attempt to define how they can differentiate them themselves from the current government, uh, after this was announced, came out with a seven-step, uh, a seven-part policy, really, of what they would do differently in the Pacific. And that ranges from putting funding into broadcast uh, into the region. Uh, the government had kind of rolled back funding for that to creating kind of a special defense uh, partnerships uh, with some of the leaders um, and the, the military officers in the Pacific uh, Islands to increasing aid and investment. So you can see that uh, both sides can claim that they have uh, you know, something to offer here. What I think is really interesting zooming out is regardless of campaign rhetoric, in the aftermath of the campaign, the security situation really has shifted. And so I do think we're going to be in a moment where whoever takes government uh, come May 22nd will be in a position to really have to rethink what is most likely to have a favorable outcome throughout the Pacific. Right. And more broadly, um, especially with the aggression um, AUKUS from last year and even speculations of what Beijing's response to um, Russia's invasion um, in Ukraine might be, it does seem like a lot of Australia's foreign policy um, revolves around China. So um, could you expand a little bit on what you just talked about, maybe on specifically what each party's stance is when it comes to dealing with China more broadly? And how do they envision the U.S.-Australia alliance and alliances with Japan and other nations developing in the coming years? Yeah, those are great questions, Julia. Let me take the uh, first uh, the first part first, and then we'll kind of expand from there about kind of how do both parties see their relationships uh, with China. And I think the short answer is fraught. And uh, in fact, uh, in a parliamentary system, you don't only get debates between the leaders, you get um, debates between you know, the, the foreign minister and the shadow foreign minister, which just happened yesterday. And they were asked this very question, uh, you know, how would uh, relations with China differ, uh, number one? And who is the onus on to make the relationship between China and Australia better? Is it on China or is it on Australia? And what um, more or less both of them said was uh, the onus is on China. Uh, Australia has made its own decisions about making sure that uh, it was not going to let uh, Huawei into its 5G architecture and kind of beefing up its uh, foreign interference uh, laws to make sure that there is no outside cash coming into Australian domestic politics. Um, on increasing the amount of screening of foreign investment coming into this uh, into the country and on kind of boosting their defense capabilities uh, with AUKUS, but on a whole range of different things that they've made investments on. And there actually is no daylight uh, between the two parties, at least rhetorically, on those. Um, and I think that's simply because, uh, if for no other reason, Australia's coercion by China, or I should say rather Beijing's coercion of Australia, has become so intense and so noticeable uh, over the past several years, there really is no space uh, for an Australia, a, a major Australian political party to say, think, or do otherwise. And so therefore, the line that we're hearing from both sides is what's changed in the relationship is not Australia, it's China. Uh, under Xi Jinping, China has become both, both much more domestically repressive and externally aggressive. And so therefore, Australia has had to change the suite of policies that it has. So in regards to China uh, policy, I think rhetorically, they're both synced up pretty closely there. You know, the secondary part of your question, Julia, what does this mean for Australia's relationship with the United States and then separately with the rest of the region? 
And I think what we're seeing emerging uh, from Australia is a desire to double down on the U.S.-Australia alliance, uh, both uh, to make sure that the United States is pulled into the region more than it might otherwise be, but also because there's a recognition that security uh, in the region has deteriorated and they need a much uh, more broader set of policies between the U.S. and Australia. But then, frankly, Australia cannot rely on the United States to do everything for it. And even if it did, its own security and prosperity would be amplified and increased by closer relations with other countries in within Asia. So that's why they've done so much legwork uh, with Japan. They signed a reciprocal access agreement back in January with the South Koreans, of course, within larger structures like the Quad, but also with their close neighbors like Indonesia and indeed with India at this point, too. And to kind of ask you a little bit more about the U.S.-Australia alliance, um, I remember looking at the news recently and seeing that um, during our, our last Trump administration, uh, the U.S.-Australia alliance was much weaker than what it is today. Um, and so with um, keeping in mind how Australia wants to strengthen this alliance in the future, I do wonder how much our own uh, next election might impact the direction that the alliance goes. Well, you know, one of the things that I think the Australians work quite hard at doing, and frankly, so do Americans, is making sure that the alliance is based on more than just the personalities at the top. Uh, and so you can see this, uh, I think, in the fact that the kind of government to government and the bureaucracy to bureaucracy kind of working groups have exploded and proliferated in kind of the number of them, the fields they work in, the seriousness of their work streams. So uh, on the one hand, uh, I think it the U.S.-Australian alliance is looking quite healthy at this point. But, you know, your question, Julia, does raise a point that when, um, you know, the U.S. looks at other countries and doesn't like the leadership it sees, but more on point here, when Australia uh, is worried about the type of leadership that the United States has, that is another real big variable uh, in the alliance and about how quickly it can move out on a number of different fronts. But I would note that, you know, for something like AUKUS, which we've touched on once or twice, AUKUS is not a deal that we're going to finish in the next you know couple of months. This is a multi-decade deal. And so for it actually to take effect, it needs to be moving across multiple administrations in both the United States and Australia. And multiple parties, frankly, uh, as well. Got it. And another point I wanted to ask you about is as the war continues in Ukraine, I've seen some commentators and experts compare what Russia's done um, in Ukraine with potentially what might occur with China and Taiwan, or maybe China and other smaller nations in the area. So first, I wonder, is this a fair comparison? And second, is this something that Australian voters and leaders um, are concerned about? Uh, yes and no. Uh, on your first question, it's not a fair comparison, right? Uh, they're very different situations. One is a land invasion route. The other would be across water. Uh, one was already more isolated uh, from the global economy than China is interwoven into all the calculations of our allies in ways that was not true uh, for um, uh, Russia. So these are quite different uh, situations. Um, you know, even a third one we might point to in terms of the battle readiness. Uh, the, the Russians have been fighting for quite a while. The Chinese military is largely untested. These are totally incomparable um, uh, situations. 
except for the fact that they're not really, uh, because the question arises, what happens when a large power uh, decides that it wants to wage a war of aggression against a smaller power? And what does the rest of the world do? And so the conversation that's developed around the invasion of Ukraine in the Indo-Pacific region is explicitly invoking uh, this analogy. And in fact, Prime Minister Kishida of Japan has said that this is in some cases a test case for us to see how well we respond to wars of aggression. And, you know, while we are watching what's happening unfold in Ukraine, uh, you know, President Zelensky addressed uh, the Australian parliament and he was totally explicit about this point, saying that we are a country very far away from you. And you might think that we are far, but we are battling for your freedom and about whether or not acts of aggression against sovereign countries will be allowed to stand. And that has immediate resonance in your neck of the woods. So people are very much thinking about that uh, in Australia and what it means for that independent of what Australia can and should do for Ukraine. And it has done a fair amount at this point, too. And quick follow up, have the candidates um, and leaders differed much um, on this topic or is it similar to other foreign policy issues that we discussed earlier where there's not as, not much daylight between the two sides? You know, there's not that much daylight, but there's also a fair amount of ambiguity, if that statement makes sense, because there's not much daylight in the fact that both sides have absolutely uh, universally condemned uh, what has happened in Ukraine and the act of aggression uh, by Russia. But when we actually ask the analogy and the metaphor about what does this mean for Australian policy on Taiwan, uh, that part is uh, TBD. Uh, you know, the, neither party uh, has said explicitly what its policy is, which makes total sense. The United States has not said explicitly what its policy is. Um, there are certain political figures uh, who have said that Australia would absolutely categorically defend Taiwan, but this is not official government nor official opposition uh, line yet. So again, I don't think there's that much daylight between them, but we don't in fact know what it is uh, that the governments would do specifically on a Taiwan contingency. And finally, as the U.S. and Australia do strengthen their alliance in the future and adversaries like China grow stronger, it seems like Australian policies um, and future elections will become increasingly more relevant to us in um, the United States. So question for you is, what should Americans and other international observers um, be paying the closest attention to in Australia in the coming months, but also in the coming years? Well, you know, Australia is such an important partner and has become even more so uh, for the United States, uh, both globally, uh, but specifically uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, arena. In fact, Kurt Campbell uh, at the White House, I, I believe, said that it is inconceivable that there's anything that the United States would be doing in the Indo-Pacific that would not be done jointly uh, with the Australians. So American security um, in the most important part of the world is intimately tied up uh, with our relationship uh, with Australia. Our deterrence balance of power uh, question is intimately tied up with uh, how quickly um, AUKUS comes online uh, and whether or not that changes uh, the calculations of various players in the region. But I think, you know, Julia, to your question about why should Americans be paying attention, the most interesting question here is, how do not giant powers, not the United States, not Russia, not China, but how does a middle-sized power that is coerced 
by China fall. And you know, you might expect that it would kind of trim sail uh, and kind of hunker down to weather the storm. And yet, in fact, Australia has really been a leader on a number of different policies. And frankly, that's part of the reason that China is just so angry about it, because it has decided to assert its sovereign privileges. So when the United States looks at allies that are dealing with an increasingly complex and frankly deteriorating security environment, and who are willing to pay their fair share and willing to do more, this is actually just what the United States would like to see from more of its allies. So that that what happens within the context of the U.S.-Australian alliance, I actually think has broader repercussions outside of it. Dr. Edel, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Julia. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.